Well, I want to uh, get back into Romans chapter 12, and so take your Bibles uh, with me this morning and open to Romans 12. We've been walking through this book for some time now, and really the first 11 chapters are an explanation of the gospel. Paul walks through the reality of our sin and our need for a Savior, and then he walks through the truths about justification and what that means for us, and then he explains the ideas of sanctification and how God is faithful to his promises in spite of what seems to be the failure of the nation of Israel. And all of this is sort of summarized in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, where Paul says that everything is actually functioning for God's glory, that everything is working together for him and for his glory, and that that is what his purpose is in the world. And because of who God is and what he's done for us as Christians, Paul then tells us that we ought to be more like Christ, that we ought to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And the power and the motivation to do that ultimately is the mercies of God, he says in chapter 12, verse 1. And this morning, we come to another one of those things that we ought to be like, that we should do, and that is in chapter 12, verse 15. Paul says this, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, again, this is one of those texts that's relatively simple. It doesn't take tons of exegesis. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to know what Paul is saying. It's very simple. He, he just tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, that, it's a sh- that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And when we've gone through these texts, I think for my heart, uh, this passage this morning, it cuts into me in a unique way. It deals with some of the deeper issues of my heart. And we would call these, this section from 14 through 21, Christian distinctives, things that make Christians different than people from other religions, other people. What makes us different? And this is another one of those, that we rejoice with those who rejoice and that we weep with those who weep. Now, it's easy for us to hide our emotions, isn't it? We, we, you've heard the phrase, maybe fake it till you make it, Right? Just do the best you can on the outside, and maybe you don't feel it on the inside, but as long as you fake it on the outside, it's okay. You're at least trying. But the verse today deals with our hearts at the most basic level. It won't allow us to just have externals. It deals with everyone in our lives, believers and unbelievers, and it calls us to actually feel something. Now, this should be shocking to us. I think a lot of people think of Christianity as rules. It's a list of rules. You do and you don't. And there's just lists of rules on either side. And the things you do, you should do better. And the things that you don't do, you should avoid even more. But that's Christianity. But here Paul is not dealing with the externals of our life. Paul is dealing with our hearts. He's commanding our emotions, not just our actions. And that should be shocking to you. He wants you to feel something, not just do something. So what I want to do is take these apart one piece at a time, and look with me at point one, genuine joy, genuine joy. The first command that Paul makes is that we are supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. This is what we're called to do. So what does that look like? Well, that's point A here, how it looks. How does it look to rejoice with those who rejoice? Paul is just saying that we should have a joy for another person when they are rejoicing, right? Again, it's very simple. When a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, when when they are filled with joy because of some circumstance or because of a blessing that's come upon them, Paul says, rejoice with them. Just rejoice with them, right? Now, obviously, Paul isn't saying rejoice with people who are sinning, right? 
Don't rejoice with people who are sinning and therefore have joy. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 6 that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices in the truth. And so the joy that Paul is saying here is not saying, he's not saying be joyful when someone gets something in some sinful way. Don't just be happy over that. But he's telling us that Christians are able to have authentic and genuine joy for those who are rejoicing over things that are good and righteous. True joy in the heart is something that Christians can have for others who rejoice. Uh, When they receive a blessing or some circumstance that goes their way, there's a birth of a child, all sorts of things are joyful experiences in our lives, right? And, And Paul says, rejoice with those people. Just feel that with them right? Feel what it is that they are feeling and, and do that with them. Part, be part of that joy. And we see this actually illustrated in, in an interesting way in Luke chapter 15. Turn there to Luke 15. Kevin read the second half of this chapter for us this morning, and we'll come to that in a minute. But look at chapter 15 of Luke. In this chapter, there's some illustrations of God's joy, God does this perfectly, and we would expect that because God is perfect in every way, but God rejoices with those who rejoice. And we see this. You know these stories, right? The first story in chapter 15 is the parable of the lost sheep, and and there's this shepherd, and one of his sheep is lost. He leaves the 99 and goes and finds it. And in verse 6, he says, when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, and says to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. That's the exact same idea, right? Rejoice with me. Be part of, participate in my joy. In verse 7, he says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus isn't saying there's actually people who don't need to repent, right? He's saying there's more joy in heaven over the one who knows their sin and repents than there is over all the people who think they're okay and they're not. They need to repent. Jesus says there's joy in heaven. And then we have the story of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10, right? We have this woman and she loses one of her 10 silver coins. And when she finds it, verse 9, she says, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What is the point of those texts? Heaven rejoices. And when does heaven rejoice? When sinners repent of their sins, when we get saved, heaven sings with joy. Why? Because there's joy in us. We are now knowing God, and in that repentance, we turn to God, and God receives glory, and there's joy both in us and in Him. He rejoices with us in our joy. This is important. God is joyful in the forgiveness of His people. Now, this is not the point of the sermon, but just think of how glorious that is. Is there some sin in your life that you're struggling with or you feel like you've committed too many times, you can't can't be forgiven now? What does God say? He rejoices in heaven when sinners repent. He wants us to come to him in repentance. So God is the perfect example of this kind of joy, rejoicing with those who rejoice in blessing. But what would keep us from this kind of joy? What would keep us from this? And this is point B on your outline, some hindrances. I think if you're honest, you've probably already thought of some things in your own heart <laughs> where you think to yourself, well, I mean, yeah, there's some rejoicing, but maybe there's other things there that, you know, that you might struggle with. And there's probably some in all of us, of course, right? But what's fascinating about this passage in Luke 15 is that what God does is he shows us what joy in heaven is like, and then he shows us the opposite of that joy. Uh, look at chapter 15, starting in verse 11. 
As I said, Kevin read it this morning. We won't read through it, but you know the story. It's the story of the prodigal son. And what does the prodigal son do? He, he runs off and he, and he squanders the father's wealth. And when he comes back, the father sl- slaughters the fattened calf and blesses the son and rejoices over him. And, and he comes to the older son. The older son refuses to even go into the party. He's not even willing to fake it. And the, the parable ends in verse 32. He says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and it was lost and has been found. But what I want to do is look at this, the older son's response and sort of consider what can happen in our hearts that parallel his response to joy and how, what might keep us from true joy with those who rejoice. The first one is envious. Envious. This is fairly, fairly easy to understand, I think. We can be envious of people who receive blessings, can't we? We can be envious of them. We can find ourselves wishing that we were receiving the blessing that someone else is receiving, right? You find out that someone else gets something and you think to yourself, well, they would be nice to have that. I wish I had that. And we can smile and say, well, congratulations, but I wish I had that blessing. I wish I had received that. I read an article not that long ago in a Christian publication that was very pointed. They said, of course, as pastors, we pray for revival and blessing for the church, right? We pray for our church. I pray for our church all the time and and pray that God would grow us and bless us and that we would do that for the glory of Christ. But the author asked the question at the end of the article, what would you do if, what would your heart do if God answered that prayer but at a church down the street? And I was like, (laughs) well, (laughs) that's pointed, right? Right? Would you still rejoice if God answered that prayer but not here? And we can feel that, can't we? When someone else gets a raise but we don't, it doesn't seem fair, right? When someone else gets married but we're still waiting for the right one to come along, when someone else gets a great deal on a house or on a car and we think, wow, I wish I had gotten that. And what happens in our hearts is envy comes out Because what's really there is not joy for that other person. There's not a genuine joy for them. What's really there inside of us is selfishness and envy. And we can smile on the outside, right? But it's not real. And that's exactly what the prodigal son's older brother did. Look with me at Luke 15. The father comes to him in verse 27. He says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He becomes angry. He's not willing to go in in verse 29. He answered and said, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat. Isn't that an amazing sentence? He's not serving because he loves the father. Why is he serving? He's serving for a goat. Literally, he's saying, you've never given me a goat. You give him the fatted calf. I don't even get a goat. He's just jealous. He's envious of that person. And so envy can keep us from truly rejoicing with those who rejoice. There's another one too, and this is point two, fear of man. A desire for approval and praise of others can keep us from rejoicing with those who rejoice. Notice the older brother again. Look what he, did. Look what he says. Verse 29. says, For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat. Why? so that I might celebrate with my friends. What does he want? He wants a goat and he wants a party. Why does he want a party? He wants a party because he wants to be the guy. He wants people to look at him and say, well, you're the older son. 
You get the fat and cat. I mean, you get the, you get the go. You're going to actually feed us all, right? And instead of him getting to be the guy, this sinner now is going to be the guy when the fattened calf is slaughtered. He's just jealous. And he has fear of man. He wants to be the life of the party. And because he wants to be the life of the party, he won't rejoice. Again, I think we can understand this, can't we? We can feel this. Someone gets the promotion that you don't get. You might ask yourself, what will people think? I deserve that. That, that, Now that guy who started below me is above me. That's not right. They won't think well of me. And our fear of man can keep us from rejoicing with them. Or maybe you drive the oldest car in the lot at work. (laughs) But you can't afford to buy a new one like the other guys. You're embarrassed and so it's hard to rejoice when someone else gets something newer than you. And you feel that. Because you you wonder, what will people think of me? My, My car's an old beater. That's just... Fear of man, right? And fear of man keeps us from rejoicing with those who rejoice. And I think there's a host of ways that our hearts can do this, where we compare ourselves to others and it keeps us from truly, with freedom, rejoicing with them. And there's one more in this text that I think is fascinating, and this is the third one. It's self-pity. Self-pity. Look at what he says. He says, look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. Anytime you hear the words never and always come out of someone's mouth, what do you know is a problem? There's self-pity in his heart. Of course he had neglected commands. He wasn't a perfect being. What's he saying? He's saying, I am so good and you don't give me anything. Self-pity can keep us from rejoicing with those who rejoice, right? What's he saying? He's saying, look at how good I am. I never get any blessings. My life isn't what? Fair. My life isn't fair. And that kind of self-pity can cause us to just lack joy for people who are rejoicing. Why? Because we just compare ourselves with them and we look at that comparison and we weigh their life in the balance and we say, you know what? My life isn't fair. It's just not fair. And we will refuse to rejoice. Now again, we can smile and we can fake it, but we're not truly joyful for them. Our hearts are hard. We actually see this in Psalm 73. Flip over there with me real quick. Psalm 73. The same thing happens. It's a famous psalm because in this psalm, the the author, Asaph, the psalmist, he's comparing himself with the evil people in the world, the arrogant, the unrighteous. In verses 1 through 3, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked." What does he say? I'm envious of the wicked. I, I want what they want. I see their prosperity. I want it. God, why don't you bless me with those things? What is this? This is the older brother, isn't it? And he talks about how the wicked are blessed and their body is fat. They're never in trouble. Everything is easy. Uh, they, they speak unrighteousness and yet they remain blessed by God. And he says, this isn't fair. My life isn't fair. And he comes to verse 13 and he says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And wash my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. What does he say? He says, it's just vanity. It's a waste of time to be righteous. What is he? He's just feeling sorry for himself. And because of that, his heart fills up with envy and evil. So when we have self-pity, it strips joy from us, doesn't it? We don't rejoice with those who rejoice. 
So take all three of these together. We have enviousness, this envy in our hearts. We have a fear of man. We have self-pity. And pretty quickly, it's very difficult for us to rejoice with those who rejoice. We begin to just fake it on the outside. But there's the other side as well, right? Weeping with those who weep. And this is point two on your outline, genuine sorrow. Paul commands us to weep with those who weep. What is that? It's sympathy, right? It's just feeling sympathy. We have a genuine sense of sympathy for the suffering. What does this look like in a Christian? This is point A on your outline. Paul commands us to have this genuine sorrow in our hearts for those who are sorrowful. A friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, someone's, someone has sorrow that interrupts their life and Paul says, listen, you ought to feel that with them. Many things can make us weep, can't they? Sorrows and relational pains in the family can make us cry. It's just heartbreaking at times. Sickness and death, bereavement, right? There's sorrow in that. It's genuine sorrow. Our hearts are broken. A loss or confusion that just won't be solved. We can't, we can't figure out how to get out of the problem. Feelings of being overwhelmed can make us cry. All these things can, make, can cause us to weep. And Some of us, I know, are more prone to tears than others. Some of us are less prone but regardless, sorrow's in all of our lives, right? All of us suffer. There's sorrow in our lives. And we don't know what sorrow will come. We know it will come because we're, we're born for trouble, right? And Paul here is calling us as Christians to come alongside those who are suffering and sorrowful and to sympathize with them, to genuinely feel what they feel, to enter into that suffering with them emotionally. Now, Why? If you've ever suffered, you know it's actually helpful to have someone else who will come along and say, yes, I understand what you're going through. I may not have gone through the exact same thing, but I feel what you feel. Someone who cares for you and who understands for you and who understands you and will help you. That, that's a genuine thing that helps us in those times of sorrow. And of course, this is everywhere in the Bible, but this is particularly with Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the perfect example of this. Jesus knows our sufferings. He says in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He was tried in every possible way. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it says he knows what it feels like to suffer. He feels it. We're told in Isaiah 53.3 that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His life was marked by sorrow. He was acquainted with the suffering and sorrows of this life. We even see this made explicit. Remember when Lazarus dies? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus what? He wept. Why did he weep? Because he saw the sorrows of the people around him who he loved and the people who were around him. It, it broke his heart. He's sorrowful. So the Bible calls us to sympathy with the sorrowful with those who are weeping. And Jesus is the perfect example of this. So let's think about this. What might keep us from being sorrowful with those who are sorrowful, with truly weeping with those who weep? This is point B, hindrances. Now again, there's a number of things, but I just want to look at three of them. The first one is self-centered. Pure self-centeredness, pure selfishness keeps us from weeping with those who weep, doesn't it? When we're full of ourselves, we don't, we don't really care about other people. We're busy. We don't have time to sit down and weep with those who weep. We're worried about our stuff. 
We don't have time in the schedule to find time to sit with that person and comfort the suffering. We, we don't take the time to consider what it would feel like to be in that person's shoes. And we're thinking about all the other things in our lives and just not about the person in front of us, right? That, of course, none of us would ever be such a jerk as to say, I don't have time for your sorrow, I'm sorry. No one would say that, but that's the hard attitude, right? That's our hard attitude. We're so full of ourselves that we won't take the time to sit with that person whose heart is broken and weep with them. Paul's already told us in this passage, right? In Romans 12, 9, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. But when we just give the nod and the Christian phrases that we know we're supposed to use, that's what we're doing. It's just hypocritical love. We don't actually care for them. We're just faking it. We're just faking it. So if we're self-centered, we won't care for others. We'll just care for ourselves. We won't weep with those who weep. There's another thing that can keep us from this. This is point two, judgmental. A judgmental person will find it terribly difficult to weep with the brokenhearted. They'll struggle with it. Why? Because they're quick to evaluate the need for that sorrow. They're quick to look at it and make a determination if the problem is caused by the one who's suffering. If the problem's caused by the one who's suffering, then they won't feel sorrow. They won't feel any sympathy. What will they feel? They'll feel judgmental. They'll say, you know, yeah, I get that you're sad, but you caused this yourself. And and they won't be kind or humble or merciful with that person. They won't weep with them. And they might not say those things out loud, but they'll say, they'll nod and smile, but inside they'll think to themselves, it's their fault. They've put themselves in this position. Deep in their hearts, they'll just be judging that person. And they'll also be quick to tell others about the person's sins that have caused their suffering. You know, when someone else comes and says, do you know, their hearts are broken, this happened. Say, well, that's what happens when you, you know, that's, that's, what is that? That's just judgmentalism. There's not genuine care for that person whose heart is broken. But Jesus isn't like this, is he? We got ourselves into trouble. Every one of us here, right? Every one of us here got ourselves into trouble. But Jesus doesn't look at us and say, stinks to be you, it's your fault. What does he say? He says, God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were yet what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us when we were the most wicked people. He saved us out of hatred toward him. And we had caused all of our own problems. All my problems are my fault. I'm the problem and Jesus saved me. How dare I turn a judgmental eye towards someone who's suffering? How dare I look at them and and be angry at them in my heart and refuse to weep with them when they suffer? Obviously, there's wisdom here, right? If you have a person who says, I refuse to work and then is weeping over their hunger, you need to help them. Help them. You need a job. Let me help you get food. There's a way to help you out of this situation. There has to be wisdom But our hearts should be sorrowful with them. We should feel what it feels like and help them. And so, we can be judgmental and that can keep us from weeping with those who weep. And the third one is proud. Proud. A proud person finds it hard to sympathize with those who are weeping. A proud person finds it hard to weep with others. Why is that? Because what pride does is it minimizes other people's sufferings. 
Pride minimizes other people's sorrows. It says things like this. This just isn't that big of a deal. This just isn't that big of a deal. When you see someone else suffering and and we say that, what is that? That's just pride minimizing someone else's pain. That's wrong. Or it can make us say, they should just get over it. Why can't they just get over it? Come on. Or even worse, this thing happened to me one time. I certainly didn't cry. What is that? That's just pride in my heart making me think that I'm better than that person. And my pride keeps me from truly weeping with them in their suffering. Now again, we have to be wise, right? I want to be careful. I think there's a time for tough love, so to speak, right? I mean, telling someone, like, hey, you have to do this. I mean, for example, think of Paul in his letter to, letters to Timothy. What does he say? Timothy's a timid guy, and he says, look, Timothy, preach the word. Do this. Even if they take your life, it's okay. Do this stuff. He's pushing him to do it, but he's not scoffing at his fear. He doesn't mock him in pride. He says, I understand. We're, come with me, and let's serve Christ together. And so pride can keep us from truly weeping with those who weep. So we've seen what genuine joy is and what genuine sorrow is, and we've seen some hindrances to both of those things. So let me ask you this. How do we get our hearts into this place? How do we get our hearts to do this? How do we go from just being on the outside, joyful or sorrowful, to truly feeling these things for the person, to truly having genuine, authentic joy, genuine, authentic sorrow with the joyful and the sorrowful? This is point three, Christian authenticity. Now again, authentic Christianity actually does this. Christianity does this in us. It causes us to feel these things. And maybe I said something today and you feel convicted and you think, well, that's kind of like how I am. I think those thoughts. I feel that way. And maybe you've been hindered from having this type of emotional care from other people. So what do we do? And just to be clear, I struggle with these things. I struggle with these things. It's easy for my heart to move these fleshly directions in times when someone is joyful or sorrowful. It's easy for me to become this way. So what do we do? Look with me at point A, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. This should go without saying, but the first thing that we need to do is to believe the reality of what God has done for us. The first thing that has to happen in our hearts, if we're going to turn and change, is for us to believe the truth of what God has done for us. Romans is a book about the mercy of God. Who needs mercy? Me. (laughs) I need mercy. And it's filled with the kindness and joy of God over my salvation. God is rejoicing. God is merciful. I need to believe that in my relationship with him. That's the first thing that has to happen. God rejoices with us when we rejoice. There's joy in heaven over sinners that repent. God rejoices in your salvation. He rejoices in your adoption as his child. He rejoices in the fact that he's with you and in you right now. He rejoices to care and love you. God is filled with joy for you. You're not a burden to him. Your joy is his joy. Think of that. And what's more, he weeps with you when you weep. He understands your sorrow. He sympathizes with your suffering. He knows what it feels like. Jesus understands how hard life is. And God is your loving heavenly father. He's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. This is his heart for us. 
It's a heart of joy and of sorrow, and he feels those things with us, and we need to believe that that is true. Our problem is not that we need to fix our emotions. Our problem is that we don't have faith that those things are true in us. We don't believe that that's really true, and instead we think of God like us. We make him like us. He's distant. He's aloof from us. He's far away. He doesn't actually intermingle, and we just have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do it by ourselves. That's our job. We wouldn't say that out loud, but I think we can so often think that way, faith, faithlessly. When we start to think of God like that, our hearts just grow cold. We just get cold to other people because we're distant from him. But when we understand God and his perfect loving care over us, when we believe those realities, our hearts soften. Our hearts soften. And then what do we realize? We realize how evil we really are, don't we? We're not like him. I'm not like him as I should be. I'm broken. I have envy in my heart. I have anger in my heart. I have selfishness in my heart. Those things are true of me. I have them in me. And what do I do with those sins? When I see the kindness and mercy of God, what do I do with those sins? I repent of them. I say, Lord, please forgive me. I'm not like you the way that I should be. I'm not like you. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And what's his answer to us? His answer is yes. His answer is yes. He takes my evil heart and my sinful, evil motivations and he crucified his son for my sins. Think of that. He crucified his son for your judgmental spirit. He crucified his son for my envy and my lack of joy in him that would cause me to not rejoice in somebody else. Jesus died for my sins. God has completely forgiven me through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that remarkable? All those evil motives, all those unrighteous thoughts, all those bad, unrighteous feelings are forgiven in Christ. Jesus died for my hard heart. When I believe that truth, something happens inside of me, doesn't it? What happens? He becomes my joy. He is amazing, isn't he? Isn't he awesome? Jesus is glorious. He died for all that evil that's inside of me, and I see that, and I understand his kindness to me and his joy with me and his mercy over me, and my heart relishes those things. But we don't want to stop there, right? What's the next thing that we have to do? We have to do something with it. Something has to go beyond faith and repentance. How do we act as Christians? And that's the point of this verse, This is point B, forgetting self and loving others. When we know the the loving heart of God for us, it changes us. And it puts into practice something in us that has to come out of us. It has to be part of who we are. We need to ask him to help us to learn to forget ourselves. This is so important. We need to learn to ask him to help us to forget ourselves, to stop thinking about our schedule, to stop thinking about the blessings that we want, to think about our self-righteous acts, to stop thinking about those things and to begin to love other people truly from the heart. Obviously, that isn't easy. That's hard. So what do we do in a moment of struggle? What do we do in that moment? Think for a moment about someone who comes to you and shares a blessing in their life and they're rejoicing over it. 
Maybe in your heart, there's been a moment where you've thought, I wish I had that blessing. I wish I had that thing. Envy climbs up in your heart, or maybe pride comes up in your heart, or self-pity comes up in your heart. I, I wish I had those things. I don't get those things. I've never even gotten a goat. That's easy to imagine, isn't it? It's easy for me. But in that moment, we need to realize how sinful that is. Just how wicked that is. What am I really saying to God in that moment? I'm saying, you haven't given me what I need. You haven't given me what I really need. What I really need are these things, but you've given it to that person. What are we really saying to God? You're not good. You're not good. You don't love me. In that moment, what we're doing is we're denying the love of God for us. We are sinning so grievously against him. So what do we do? We need to learn to think of our sin not just as passing thoughts, but as offensive screams in heaven. And we need to go to God and say, Lord, please forgive me. I am so sinful. I'm so sinful. I can't believe this is what comes up in my heart. And I need to believe and repent for that sin. And ask God to fill my heart with so much joy and satisfaction in him that I don't need any other blessing in my life to be happy. I don't need anything else to be happy. Why? I have Jesus and he died for all my sins. And the hell that I rightfully deserve has been taken off of me. I don't need anything else. When our hearts are satisfied in Jesus and in his love for us, what will happen? We will truly rejoice with those who rejoice. And think of a time when someone weeps over some sorrow in their life. Someone comes to you and expresses a sorrow and maybe there's something in your heart that's so self-centered and you think, I don't have time for this guy. I don't have time for this girl. It's, it's, I've, got, I've got to get to the grocery store. I've got all these things I've got to do. Or maybe in your heart you're judgmental and you think, well, your life's been full of error. Of course you're sorrowful. Or maybe you're proud, right? And you think, this is nothing. This is nothing. Why are they crying over this? What should we do in that moment? We need to turn to God in faith and repentance, right? We need to realize God didn't do that with us. He didn't do that with me. He saw me wallowing in filth and he came in his kindness and had mercy on me. He weeps with me in my sorrows. And when our hearts realize and believe the depth of our wickedness and how God has come in the flesh to be acquainted with our griefs because of his love for us, we will find the power to truly weep with the sorrowful and to come to their help. That's the only way. And this is why deep in their hearts, an unbeliever can't feel these things truly. They can't. Uh, they can feel sad for someone else's sorrow and they can say, well, I love that person and so I'm trying to feel it. But deep in their hearts, they can't. They can't do it. Only a Christian who understands what Christ has done for them can truly obey this verse. But every Christian who understands what Christ has done for them can obey this verse. All of us can do this. So how? Well, the answer, of course, very simply, is love. We just need to love that person. We need to love them. And that love has to come from a heart that has enjoyed the glory of Jesus Christ and the mercies of their Heavenly Father. And when we love that person truly, we will rejoice with them and we will weep with them. And in all of that, who will receive the glory for that? It's not us because we're good people. It's not us because we have good motives. It's not us because our hearts are in the right place. No. Who gets glory for all of that? Christ does, the one who's changed us to be more like him. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. Lord, we confess that Lord, it's so easy for us to be envious. Lord, it's easy for us to be self-pitying, to be proud, to be self-centered. When someone comes to us with joy, and it's so easy for us to be self-centered and judgmental and proud when someone comes to us in, in sorrow. Lord, we don't rejoice rightly. We don't weep rightly. Lord, we just fake it on the outside. Lord, it's easy for us to do this because, Lord, we still struggle with sin. But Lord, we thank you that you are not like this. Lord, you rejoice with those who rejoice. You rejoice in heaven over our repentance. Lord, you rejoice when we have true joy in you. And Lord, you know our weakness and suffering. Lord, Jesus came, he felt it all. Lord, he understands what we were going through. He understands our sorrows. Lord, he weeps with us. So Lord, I pray that you would make us more like him. Lord, I thank you that so many do this so well, but Lord, I pray that you would make us more like him, that we would excel still more in our love for each other and for those outside. Lord, that we would be people who are like you. Lord, so that you would receive glory and honor in our lives. Lord, that people would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.